I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Flora Gladwin. And I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. So as we mentioned during our last episode, we recently had our 10,000th listener tune into the podcast. And, you know, naturally we're excited to have so many people tune in. And, you know, really for us, the reward is every listener is an opportunity to help one more person kind of move from, you know, climate concerned into climate action. Absolutely. And with that in mind, we've recently set a target to reach another 5,000 listeners by the end of the year. Uh, So you personally can help us reach our goal by having at least three of your friends subscribe to the podcast. It's person-to-person recommendations are definitely one of the best ways to help us reach a wider audience. And if you have friends who are concerned about climate change but may not be the podcast type, you can have them sign up for our monthly newsletter. You know, and unlike some climate newsletters that may leave you feeling depressed, we provide (laughs) succinct summaries focused on what you need to do to solve the climate crisis with opportunities to take action that can turn you into a, you know, climate superhero. So one of the harsh realities of a changing climate is that those who are most vulnerable to its impacts have contributed the least. Climate justice is the idea that wealthy nations who've driven the vast majority of greenhouse gas emissions provide financial resources and the expertise to help poor countries prepare for worsening climate impacts. We've talked before on this podcast about climate justice, but it's been over a year since we've touched on the topic and the need to act has only grown more urgent. So with that in mind, we're going to take a fresh look at the topic with an exciting guest. But before we get to introduce our exciting guest, we just want to take a moment to talk about our own personal climate actions and this week's reason for hope. So to start us off, Thomas, Jason, what have you two done lately to help fight climate change? So I guess I'll go first. Uh, Thomas, you can't show me up though. (laughs) I'll try not to, Lewis. I've got two things I'll highlight. I've been talking about fixing my commuter bike for, let's just say, a long time at this point, um, to the point where I don't think my girlfriend thinks I'm ever going to fix it. But I did finally buy the parts and they arrived. And so going to get it repaired just in time for summer so I can spend more miles on the bike and and less in in the EV. And the other thing I did was uh, actually had some folks I know through the business community who were interested in learning more about carbon credits. And so put together a, a write-up for them and talked about where, you know, I think they're valuable, you know, encourage them to, to buy them whenever they fly. Okay, Thomas, you're next. <laughs> All right, Jason. Uh, so this week I, um, I saved a friend from spending a crazy amount of money on really fancy resistive element wall panel heaters we've got to keep in mind that resistive element heating has not got any more efficient than when edison first invented the light globe in 1870 and instead of spending 500 dollars per panel heater they're then spending that money on more insulation so i i consider this a win the beauty about insulation is like once it's in it's in there forever right i, I always try and encourage people spend money on insulation before heating upgrades. Well, and once the insulation's in, it's free, right? It's just saving you money versus running the heaters are just costing you money. Flora, what about you? Ooh, you guys are out here saving people from terrible climate mistakes. I don't have anything 
quite as exciting. Um, I did just graduate from college, which is the most exciting part of this. Um, yeah. That's yeah, true. right? Congratulations. Pretty big. Thank you. But now I'm going through all of my stuff that I have accumulated during four years. But yeah, I'm working on my trying to reuse, not recycle. So I've been mending some of my clothes that, you know, still have some years of life left in them. And then I'm also getting in on a neighborhood-wide garage sale soon, which is going to be exciting. Hey, I've got a whole truckload of stuff I'll bring down your way. Perfect. (laughs) So Thomas, what do you got for us on this week's Reason for Hope? Well, this week's Reason for Hope involves Acker Carbon, an organization that we've interviewed in the past, and they just announced a, a major carbon capture and storage project with uh, Orsted Energy from Denmark. So the, the whole plan there is to build a bioenergy carbon capture project where basically they'll be taking residue from harvested crops like straw, trash, and they'll be extracting the carbon dioxide from that when they combust it in their heat and power plants. So it'll be creating electricity for the grid, creating district heat for houses around the area, and at the same time, they'll be capturing that carbon and storing it back underground. Which is really exciting. I mean, we're going to need solutions out there that help remove carbon from the atmosphere. And given that this is waste bioresidues and you're not letting that carbon go back up, it actually ends up functioning as, as what they call a negative carbon credit. Mm-hmm. And, and I heard that Microsoft actually struck a deal with them to buy these credits and enough to offset roughly 90,000 cars. So pretty big deal. So pivoting to our main topic, since we're going to be discussing climate justice today, for people who maybe don't know the numbers, it's good to have a little bit more context, which is if you take, let's say, the historical emissions, so all the emissions that have been put up into the atmosphere, the US and and the EU together are responsible for roughly half. And you you add China to that, and, and now you're at 60%. On the other end of the spectrum, if you were to take the entire continent of Africa, you're talking just 3%. You pull South Africa out of that, you're talking under 2%. The other thing to think about when we're talking about climate justice is there are different dimensions, right? You've got, you know, developing countries versus developed. You've got, you know, historically marginalized communities. You know, you've got young people who are paying the price, arguably, of, of the baby boomers. Flora, I don't know how you feel about that. Um, (laughs) so there's lots of dimensions to climate justice. The good news is there are a lot of climate justice organizations out there that are working to help rectify these inequalities at varying scales, whether that's, you know, kind of at a municipal level, uh, national level, or even globally. Yeah, absolutely. So here to speak more to that topic today is our guest, Leah Thomas. Leah is a celebrated environmentalist founder of the nonprofit Intersectional Environmentalist, and author of a book called The Intersectional Environmentalist, How to Dismantle Systems of Oppression to Protect People and Planet. She has been recognized for her work in outlets like Harper's Bazaar, W Magazine, CNN, ABC News, NBC, and more, and has been honored on lists including Ebony Power 100, Time 100 Next, and Insider's Climate Action 30. Currently, she's based in Los Angeles, California. Well, Leah, welcome to Climate Optimist. Hey, thank you for having me. 
So let's start you off with the basic question we do all our guests. When it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful? I feel really hopeful because there's been an increase in environmental justice policy in the United States. There's been over $100 million in grants from the federal government specifically for environmental justice, which gets me really excited. And it really feels like environmental justice is on the map, like lots of conversations about it. So that makes me really hopeful for what grassroots EJ organizations can do. Nice. You're seeing that momentum as well, just like we are in sort of the broader, you know, climate action space. Well, let's start with kind of like what drew you to getting involved with, you know, environmental justice, climate justice. I would say, I mean, I've always been kind of an outdoorsy person. So I just like being outside, being in the garden, things like that. And then I more formally studied environmental science and policy when I was in school. And during that time, it was kind of the beginnings of the Black Lives Matter movement, which impacted my hometown. So lots of conversations about racial justice at the same time I was studying environmental science and policy. And then I realized in my curriculum and many curriculums that are environmental science focused, there isn't always peace to learn about the intersections of racial justice, wealth inequality, and environmental outcomes. So I really wanted to focus on that intersection and raise awareness for how lower income communities and communities of color disproportionately experience more environmental hazards and find ways that I could add that to the broader environmental conversation in addition to all the carbon in the atmosphere. So that's why I got really excited because I saw it as the perfect opportunity to just update environmental storytelling and communications to also be very down on earth and not just in the atmosphere to show people what's happening in their own communities and who's being the most impacted. Yeah, definitely an important dialogue and something, you know, many folks who may be passionate about the environment don't necessarily, aren't necessarily aware of. And I guess that's kind of a good segue to my next question, which is, what does it look like, right? When we're talking about climate injustice, uh, let's say in the U.S., can you talk a little bit about that and maybe environmental justice more broadly um, in terms of how that manifests? Yeah, so in the United States specifically, and this is where the formal environmental justice movement and terminology started, which is really cool. In the 80s, there were researchers who were looking at the placement of toxic waste sites and income and race. And they found that race was like the number one and income, the number two indicator of whether or not someone would have toxic waste facilities in their neighborhoods. And that really just sparked a field of research that was looking at different identity aspects and the proximity to environmental hazards like clean air and clean water, et cetera. Um, So in the United States specifically, a lot of environmental justice really does have to do with housing and the placement of people and how close they are to environmental hazards. And as the climate crisis has increased natural disasters, we're seeing more frequency of climate catastrophe and natural disasters that also happen to impact a lot of those communities that are already impacted by EJ issues. And so, you know, in in places like the U.S. that could be folks are maybe located or, you know, in a floodplain. And so when you have floods, they're the first to get hit or, you know, folks may be in a kind of an urban heat island. They don't have as many trees in the neighborhood. And so, you know, as you get these more frequent heat waves, they're more adversely impacted. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think every city, every town has their environmental justice story. If it's a town that used to have a big coal industry or fracking and fracking fluid, um, then that might be their EJ story. If it's community, like you said, an urban environment that doesn't have a lot of trees, then their environmental justice story could be pollution or, you know, increased heat exposure. And then internationally, environmental justice looks like when the United States ships their trash to other places to deal with or electronic waste and sending our waste to the global south which is causing polluted waterways polluted communities and when it's e-waste exposure to that e-waste which has negative health impacts and it really just boils down to oftentimes the people who are the least responsible for the climate crisis experience the burdens a lot more so i just got back from nepal country that's not really contributing a lot of carbon emissions at all and I took a 12-seater plane to this mountain community and they're quite literally trying to hold the sides of the mountain together because they keep having all these landslides and rain incidents that have increased over the last couple of years because of the climate crisis and they're just living life but their ways of life are being impacted disproportionately by the climate crisis, even though they're not really contributing to it. Yeah. So it seems like a hard thing to square. You know, we've, you know, in the first world benefited a lot from, you know, the burning of fossil fuels, you could argue. And then you've got all these folks who have done very little in terms of putting CO2 up in the atmosphere and and are being heavily impacted. You know, obviously islands as well, island nations, another example, right, where sea levels rising. So given that we have this unfortunate dynamic what you know what kinds of solutions are needed to ensure we transition you know away from let's say a fossil fuel based economy in a way that's just right yeah so the concept of climate reparations sometimes is like a hot take but it doesn't necessarily need to be i think that a lot of communities that have been impacted the most by climate catastrophe should financially benefit Just like how communities in the United States maybe had a loss of industry should be sometimes the first cities that are considered for like green renewable energy projects to help revitalize their communities. So from an international perspective, I think for there to be a just transition, we need to make sure the most impacted communities financially benefit so their communities can benefit and aren't, you know, being exposed to additional harms. And in in the United States, I feel the exact same way. Communities that have been impacted by various different things should have a shot at financially benefiting from a green energy transition. So being deliberate about where those investments take place to ensure those communities benefit first. Absolutely. Yeah. And just for context for people, I mean, what you talked earlier about, you know, investments that have taken place in the U.S. are set to take place. How are things kind of playing out, you know, on a global scale? Are we seeing the level of investment that we should? You know, I know there's been conversations, obviously, at the last couple climate conferences. Yeah, we always need more, but things are increasing. And I love that you mentioned kind of smaller island nations earlier, because that's something that's often talked about. Like people are going to have to evacuate their, you know, countries and communities that might be underwater. So who's responsible for financing that transition? What countries will open their doors and help their help them preserve their way of life and culture? So that's a really important conversation that's happening right now. 
that there's a lot of varying opinions on, but it seems like the concept of climate reparations or climate funding, as some people are calling it, it's happening more. So I'm glad about that at least, but we've got a long way to go. So it sounds like there's a dialogue, which is obviously first step, and then maybe there's some initial investments taking place, but you know, yet to be seen the level of investment that we need given the scale of the problem. So are there are there certain types of policy solutions that you might be able to point for folks towards? I mean, we're talking about how do we address this issue, whether those are things that we you know need to pass or would benefit from, or maybe things that have already passed that folks might not be aware of. Yeah, so a lot of it comes down to enforcement. Um, so there's a statistic I often say that around 71% of African Americans live in counties that frequently violate federal air quality standards. And then for white Americans, I think it's like 30 or 40%, which is still a lot of people. And for other racial groups, it's like a lot of people. So there's policies that are there that are just not being enforced properly. So I think when it comes to the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, like those things just need to be enforced. Whether that happens at the state level or the local level or the federal level, there should be consequences for industries that are polluting communities past what they're supposed to be doing. Um, So in one way, that's like a good thing. Like we've thought about this. We've created pretty extensive policies about where pollution can go, where it can't go, but we're just not properly enforcing it. So that's one thing that I think needs to happen. Yeah, I guess so good that we've got those things on the books, but not ideal that we're not enforcing them. And is, is your sense that that's just a lack of sort of political will? Is it is it funding for these agencies who are in charge of doing it? What's leading to kind of this lack of enforcement? Oh my God, so many things. Not enough support. And then monitoring. Who's going to monitor the carbon emissions or the pollution that's coming from various landfills and various cities? Like there needs to be proper infrastructure to be able to say like, okay, this air quality is bad. That means we have to fine this organization or this has to happen or if it's not fines here are the repercussions so I feel like there needs to be a lot more thought put into that and kind of stricter policies because people will continue to violate them if they know that they can get away with it so I think that's definitely part of the problem so so that's sort of on the lacking side I guess I'm wondering are there are there places out there who are kind of leading edge when it comes to making progress on the environmental justice side, whether that's within the U.S., globally? I would say places that are good. I'm kind of biased, so definitely thinking about the state of California, which I feel like has a lot of progressive policies that might not always say this is an EJ thing, but is environmental justice related. So there was one case of a Black community that lived along a beach front property back in the day, but due to racism and other things were kind of chased out of the town. So the community got back together to essentially give the land back to the descendants, which was a really cool kind of historic moment. And we're also seeing that for indigenous communities across California, whether it's neighborhoods purchasing land back from development to ensure that it can be preserved and that indigenous communities can have a part in that preservation. So projects like that get me really excited. And some other things, I I definitely need to look at some wins. Um, I know I know of them, (laughs) but I should should Google those (laughs) a little more. Those of us who are in the environmental community and outside of California definitely appreciate California's leadership there. So seems Mm -hmm. like 
when you guys get things figured out, it gives momentum to other states and places to be able to to say, hey, you know, this can be done and it can be done well. Well, that leads me to another question. You know, what would you say to individuals who are passionate about environmental justice, climate justice, et cetera, and, you know, in terms of what they can do to get involved and, and you know, make a difference in that space? Yeah, I love that phrase. What is it? Act local, think global or something like that. So yeah, getting involved with your local climate justice or environmental justice organization, which could be like a community garden. Um, It could be honestly, trash pickups are are really important and things like that. Um, Or fundraising for a local organization. I think the first step is just finding out like what is the EJ story of your neighborhood? What's the EJ story of your state? And then, yeah, just joining forces. There's thankfully so many organizations that are doing amazing work. They just need the resources and amplification and support to grow. So that's what each and every person who's listening can do. You can be that amplification body by sharing their work, donating to their work, or by getting involved and, you know, just asking them, like, what do you need? But there are so many ways to engage and all of it is important. So whether it's a micro engagement on social media or being in person at a protest, everything, you know, matters and counts. Yeah. I mean, I, I think sometimes people may underestimate the, the value of small actions because when you spread them across, obviously, a lot of people, you know, you have a bigger impact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes in climate organizing and movement spaces in general, it's like, who's doing the most? And, you know, there are some people who it's their full time to be an activist, educator, organizer. And some people, they're just trying to survive and they work in a completely different field. And just doing what's accessible to you is incredibly important. And I think comparison can really be the thief of joy. So making sure that you give yourself (laughs) credit for what you do, as long as you're trying. I like that. Just get involved, whatever that might be. You know, so I, I think sometimes when there's a discussion about environmental justice, climate justice, as well as like climate mitigation, it can be kind of looked at as this kind of either or that you have, you know, you really can only focus on one at a time and wondering what your thoughts are in terms of in terms of that, you know, perspective. I would say that it's both and it's never an either or. And it's also really important to respect other people's theories of change and know that there are so many environmental issues in the entire environmental movement. And we don't all have to focus on one issue and then solve it and then go over to the next one. We can mobilize a lot of people to tackle multiple issues at once. So I would say it's just so important to, even if you are focusing on something that's not environmental justice, to try to maybe incorporate some of it into your work. And then also just acknowledge and um, you know affirm that environmental justice is also really important. Yeah, I like that. I think it's a complex problem and there's going to be a myriad of solutions and you don't have to, there isn't just one way to do it. And yeah, if we don't, if we don't address the, you know, the justice part of it, um, yeah, it's going to be ugly on a lot of levels. Well, Leah, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast and taking the time to chat with us about this critical issue, you know, raise some, hopefully some awareness for folks who might not be as familiar and, and yeah, give it us a, you know, call to action to get involved. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. So, Thomas, for coming out of the interview with Leah, um, want to get your thoughts as well. But I think, you know, she spoke a little bit about 
you know, some of the dollars that had been, you know, invested in the climate justice movement. And I think it's worth highlighting, you know, some of the recent accomplishments, even though we're by no means there yet. Uh, you know, here in the U.S., we had the Inflation Reduction Act. It had several pieces that were focused on climate justice, you know, addressing pollution, helping, you know, create more funding for fence line, what they call fence line monitoring, where you've got a community that's backed up against an industrial facility, you know, a coal plant, et cetera. Got provisions that are focused on making clean energy more affordable and accessible. There's a, you know, as an example, a 10% credit if you put a solar project near a low income community. There's a focus as well on cleaning up uh, emissions from transportation corridors. So, you know, you've got communities that live next to an interstate or a, a port. And then there's also, you know, some funding in there that's designed to help with resilience. Uh, some, you know, money to help tribal communities, landscapes and fisheries become more resilient, you know, as climate impacts unfold. So the devil's obviously in the details. I don't, you know, it, you have to really dig in to know what the dollars are, but I think the Inflation Reduction Act is definitely the first major piece of legislation, you know, focused on really addressing, you know, some of the justice elements of climate change. And, you know, actually very recently, like in the last uh, just couple months, there was on the global scale, a UN resolution where the uh, nation of Vanuatu uh, in the South Pacific uh, had been pushing to increase legal accountability for countries that are polluting and their resolution passed through through the UN. Uh, it's the first attempt to establish climate action obligations under international law. And while you know international law isn't necessarily binding, it does give a lever to help pressure nations to you know basically live up to the commitments they made under something like you know the Paris Accord. Wow. And can you speak at all to like the practical side of that? I mean, what does that mean, right? Like held accountable. The goal is, as I understand it, is really to uh, help clarify whether there's, you know, legal obligations that, you know, a nation like the U.S. or others, when we, you know, commit to like the Paris Accord, which is non-binding, mm -hmm. um, that there's basically an opportunity for a country like Vanuatu to to sue and say, hey, you know, Whoa. the United States didn't follow through on the commitments it made. And that's in turn having an adverse impact on you know, an island that that's not far above sea level. So that's my understanding. There's a, a good article in the Guardian that we'll link in the show notes that talks about it. But mm -hmm. yeah, the really kind of the first time that a nation has tried to clarify kind of whether, you know, these vulnerable countries have legal standing to come after the big polluters. Wow, that's really interesting. What about you guys? What were your uh, your takeaways from the discussion? Well, I, I think, Jason, that... Um it's a little bit <clears throat> difficult for me to say too much on this coming from a position of white male privilege uh, <laughs> growing up in one of the most polluting countries in the world. But uh, I, I think she brings up a good point that there, there needs to be um, more consequences to actions or the lack thereof um, on climate solutions. And you know, to date, we've set all these aspirational targets and no one's really been held to account, and and that's a good thing I think about these um, carbon tariffs that the uh, European Union are going to be bringing to play. That there starts to be some consequences, um, and even if that's not consequences in one's own country, it's consequences at the border when products then then cross it, and hopefully that will drive the action because 
I'm very reluctant about just like we seem to be very keen to throw money at the problems after the fact. Oh, you know, these communities are getting washed away. So let's go and build a refugee camp for them or let's go and build some concrete walls to um, you know, hold the sea level back for a few more years. But at the end of the day, what we need to be doing is you know, decarbonizing as quickly as possible and realizing that there might be a little bit of short-term pain, but we need to get in front of this so that all that expenditure is not on the back end where it's too late at that stage. You've already destroyed these people's communities. We just need to get in front of it. And, then, and we, we also need to realize all the other benefits that come about from spending this money up front. In fact, there was a study that was recently performed in Victoria here, state just north of me, and they, they worked out that $1 spent on better insulating houses in poor communities was the equivalent of $10 spent elsewhere in the community on health costs and clothing costs and all these other costs that come about because somebody's house is too cold because you know they couldn't afford to insulate it. So I think we need to look at that at a global scale and the effect on these communities in Africa or low-lying Pacific Islands where we need to stop thinking about throwing money at the problem on the back end and just get in front of it. God, yeah, that's a really good point. I was reading a little bit about island nations after the interview just because I was, I don't know, thinking a lot about what Leah and Jason had talked about regarding um, some of the like disproportionate economic burden of climate change. And I found this statistic, which is old, it's from 2016, but just staggering that this tropical cyclone Winston took out over a third of Fiji's GDP in 36 hours. So that's completely removed from the actual damage that was done. But, you know, at that point, like you're saying, it's it's too late. Like, sure, money helps, but you can't undo that sort of damage. Yeah, i i think I think that example is is a great one, Flora, and you know it, it you know underscores Thomas's point as well, which is you know the sooner we can bring our emissions down, the mm-hmm. less damage that we're going to see, right? So, and obviously in parallel that with that, you have to be providing funding for these communities to. To be able to become more resilient, knowing that we're dealing with a changing climate, whether that's being resilient from an agricultural perspective in terms of the way in which they raise their food, and you know, ensuring their structures are resilient to things like hurricanes and floods. You know, the last thing we want to be doing is waiting and then slapping up some sort of temporary solution like a seawall. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think this ties back a bit to the um, episode we did on the on the Amazon and and the fact that mm-hmm. trees are actually so good at helping provide resilience in these communities whereas a barren landscape has no moisture inertia and so you know it, it, it reduces the chances of them having to suffer through these their droughts for extended periods of time um, and p- part of the problem is that you know with population growth those regions of the world have been pushed harder and harder yeah I think what you're getting at Thomas which is a really important point is that you know Leah was talking about the need to have further investments the reality is it's hard to get anybody to step forth and and invest in the way that they should when it comes to climate justice and so I think it's incumbent upon us to be as smart as we can about how we invest those dollars and put it towards the things that are really going to make, you know, these communities sustainable in the long run. So, you know, with all this discussion of of climate justice, 
I think, you know, naturally leads to the question of, of what can we do to, to help advance the movement and, and outcomes for these most vulnerable folks. And, you know, kind of piggybacking on, on Leah's comment, we'd like to encourage folks to get involved locally. So take a moment to, you know, to look up environmental justice organizations in your own community and, you know, sign up for a local event to volunteer. Giving time is, is a great way to help out. And, and if you're short on time, uh, consider you know a financial donation to your local organizations and and the work that they're doing. Oh yeah, I mean there's definitely no shortage of you know local issues to try to tackle that really are applicable both on the environmental and the social level. Um, Thomas, you actually were telling us about a really good one earlier. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I'm not normally the uh, the one asking people to write letters. That's that's normally Jason's domain, but I think in this case encouraging your local public transit authority to make the switch to electric vehicles, um, get those diesel buses off the road. Like, And this is the thing about communities in poorer areas are often very dependent upon diesel buses. They're often near freeways. They have a lot of truck traffic. So the sooner we can get these diesel vehicles off the road that are often don't meet even the most current pollution requirements, diesel particulate filters and so forth. The sooner we can get them off the road, the better. So yeah, reach out to the transit authority, ask them to make the switch to electric vehicles. Yeah, I think that's a good one, Thomas. I mean, the the reality is there's multiple benefits. So, so that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. Come back and, and join us again in two weeks on June 6th, when we'll be releasing our, our next episode. Climate Optimist is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.